The church for some is a place of hope, inspiration, and healing. For others, the words spoken in church are a source of pain and trauma and can even be triggering. I believe that especially in the church, words matter. That's why I was eager to sit down with Dr. Jeremy Hilton, visiting associate professor of biblical languages at Union Theological Seminary. I think if anyone can help shed some light on the word, it will be Dr. Hilton. So join us for this deeper conversation on the word of God. My group was sort of like a mega church in some ways. It was as big. It was 4,000 people. But maybe culturally, what would surprise people a little bit is it, it didn't partake of certain elements you might associate with evangelicalism in America. Um, it, it wasn't uptight or fussy. I mean, everyone, all the young people were heavily pierced and tattooed. This was different time and everyone was into punk music and in fact we played punk music at church we never played any sort of christian music Mm. um, because that was just viewed as stuffy and churchy and we didn't want to be that way the things that were like many other evangelical groups was we had there was an enormous emphasis on scripture so for the four years i was there i was probably in some sort of bible study meeting, church meeting, whatever. We didn't draw sharp distinctions seven days a week. And you and we had we had special theology classes on Wednesday night and you had to memorize your two hundred and fifty memory verses every year and keep adding to that. And um so it was a very intense study of scripture. And then it was uh there was a desire to live things out, which in retrospect I think we didn't always do perfectly, but it was sincere. So we lived 12 to a house, three three to a room in my case, 12 to a house, and we would have these intense meetings with the goal of being better followers of, of Christ. But this was not typical college fair. So I'll give an illustration. One of our regular meetings in this house was a hard-to-love discussion where your 11 roommates would, if it was your week in the hot seat, would explain why Jeremy was hard to love. And this was meant to be a positive way to frame, not like just a list of all your faults, although that's what it tended to devolve into, (laughs) but why, boy, I love you, brother, but here's what makes you hard to love. I was the kid who loved to go to church. Yeah. As far back as I can remember, always felt something Mm -hmm. on the inside Mm -hmm. when something was being said that just didn't jive. I remember those feelings. And when you're young, where this gets really hard is part of the Christian message, which I think is a sound one, as dangerous as it is, is that you don't want to rely on your own wisdom, right? So when you hear that message that you think, boy, that doesn't sound right, there's another voice in your head saying, well, maybe this is just because I'm worldly, or maybe this is my sinful nature, or whatever. Every church has its different description for this. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should embrace this thing, but boy, it, it doesn't sit right with me. And that's really hard, especially the younger you are, because what are your other points of comparison? I know for me, what was extremely helpful was when I finally got exposed to some 
Christian theology that was not of the same stripe as my church, that was saying some of the same things that I was feeling for a while. Mm-hmm. So I sort of put it on hold. I, I don't know why we keep saying this. I, that doesn't really feel biblical to me. There's other elements of it that don't feel right. But I don't know, who am I? I'm a 20-year-old, uh, and maybe this is just because of my pride or because of whatever else that's, I need to submit to this word. This would be the language we would use. Mm-hmm. And when I saw confirmation of these things I felt by people who had the academic and spiritual credentials that I recognized, oh, wait, I can trust this person because this person's also speaking from Scripture. And slowly, it took me a while, but I sort of got the confidence of my convictions to say, you know, I was right to be uneasy with message X or Y or Z. I don't think it is biblically grounded, or I think there are reasons to reject it uh, on other Christian grounds. And that was a process, and that's yeah. that's hard. I, it's, it's not only hard, it is courageous um, yeah. in it being an arduous task, because if your church was anything like my church, yeah. you were saying, I have questions to the person, the pastor, the leader, the whomever, that you are not supposed to question because... That person hears from God, we've been taught, and they know better, and the devil also speaks, so you can be hearing from the devil. The devil can quote scripture. Yeah. So what good does it do if I cite another passage? Uh, It's very destabilizing, and yeah, I mean, since you asked about, I have to say, I have a lot of friends who left the same church, many of whom would not speak about it as fondly as I do. And they feel a little bit abused because they feel like, well, it could, it could become manipulative really easily because you're not supposed to speak back about certain things. Or maybe you raise a hard question. We were allowed to raise hard questions to my church's credit. That was part of the culture. Mm-hmm. At the end of every sermon, there was hands went up. We had Q&A. So it was atypical in that regard. But a sociologist could have sat in the corner of the room and observed, and we realized it ourselves, certain types of questions are welcome, and certain types of questions, the atmosphere changes. And, oh, so-and-so is being a troublemaker. Oh, yeah. He's a problem. And for the person who's been told he's a problem, just because, as far as he can say, but wait, I'm playing by the rules. I'm... I'm looking at another passage from Scripture, which you told me to do, and I don't think what you're saying makes sense. And at some point, there's just human authority against authority, and people can feel like they just get beat up on. They did get beat up on sometimes. So I don't, I'm sympathetic and sad for friends who had a worse experience there than I did, and it is really hard to make those changes. If I could just say one other thing on this topic, something that's been a a long-term source of sadness for me is that quite a lot of my friends who left our church also left the faith altogether, Mm. either immediately, coterminously with leaving our group, or not long thereafter. And I'm not judging anyone for deciding they aren't a believer. You can't control that yourself. Faith is a gift. But... What really does make me sad, and kind of is probably the thing that makes me angriest 
about our old church is that it felt like the one thing they held on to, even when they had begun to doubt so much about the church, our church was kind of arrogant. Maybe most churches are. We, we, definitely there was a sense that like we are the only true game in town. Everyone else gives you watered-down gibberish. Yeah. Uh, every church has that. Just about every church has some version of that. And what was sort of heartbreaking to me is to see friends come to the conclusion, wait, I don't think our church has the truth about Christianity or the way things really are. But I, But then they wouldn't go search out any other church or any other Christian theology or would they read any like great Christian novels or explore because they had retained the sense that like, well, if it ain't here, it ain't anywhere. So, I mean, I don't think they would have worded it that way, Mm -hmm. but that's what stuck. And I even had conversations and I'd say, have you considered the books of so-and-so, which I found really have so much of the good stuff without some of these things that caused us to leave. And they would be dismissive and say, oh, come on, that's just, you know, that's just watered down. Mm. That's the Catholics or, oh, that's just watered down Protestantism or whatever. And this was heartbreaking to me because I know there were resources, for me, it's been so clear, there were really robust, nourishing resources. And I just saw this again and again. It happens in uh, churches of color, black churches, uh, especially um, in the churches that I've been in and grown up in, that it's already placed there before it happens. Yeah. That there are people who church hop, who get yeah. mad at the mm. pastor here mm. and then go there and then next week yep. get another church. Yep. And all the churches are not the problem. You're the problem. Right. And so that's already sure. ingrained, indoctrinated into you. Yep. So I think it's a challenge to want to go somewhere else because there's a shame with leaving a church. That's right. You are made to blame when you leave a church because just like you don't question the pastor because he hears from God, then you also, if you're leaving a church, then you're leaving God because you're the problem. So no matter where you go, you're going to be the problem. And for me, it was when I stopped going to a church Mm -hmm. that began to feel cultish to me, that I, my spirituality strengthened. It was like getting, having the blinders taking off or the the whatever, the tent taking off your glasses. Mm -hmm. And I began to actually pay attention to plants Mm. and water mm. and wow look at those trees do you see that like it's things that i felt like i began to see the god in everything yeah instead of just the god of sunday morning yeah speak to language and identity because you spoke to how that how the christians were even identifying themselves how churches identify themselves and how we even see today political groups identify themselves by language mm. expressions like family values now stand for a whole range of things and you basically can't there's no way to rescue that term if you wanted to rescue that term so much christian language has been used most vocally and repeatedly by certain segments of the christian right in this country the family values crew that it feels like it's really hard to use it in any other way. 
Just the word Christian. Just the word Christian is almost enough to put a lot of people off for understandable reasons. Something that saddens me about the way we speak here at Union and, 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 and in progressive Christian circles in general, I don't know the solution to this, but I feel like certain terms and categories that are biblical and traditional across broad stretches of the tradition, we have decided are too toxic for use mm. and you never hear them or very rarely hear them. Mm. And I think that's probably to our detriment. And I don't know the right solution. And actually as a white straight guy, I'm not, I don't really feel comfortable being the one to say, oh, you know what? we should re reinvigorate this language because I may not be the one who knows most intimately why some of that language was jettisoned in the first place, right? So I, I keep this to myself and I sort of just keep my ears open or sometimes I'll test it with my daughter who is a woman of color or my partner or whatever. Yeah, I almost feel like we should do a periodic, uh, what do you call it? Like not a census, but as a term for like a check-in, where where you, where I almost wish we had a, a a chart, and and we could say, okay, let's just have a quick frank discussion. Which of these terms and categories are in constant circulation for us, mm -hmm. and which metaphors for the Christian life, which images for God, which images for holiness or love, have gone strangely absent. Which of these, if we say, I haven't heard anyone talk about God like that in ages. Or yeah. that that's in the Bible, and St. Francis preached sermons on that? I had no idea. Because I feel like there's always that risk that you, as you hack away on things that are contaminated, mm -hmm. because, oh, wait, this is so liable to misunderstanding, or it's liable to misuse, so I'll hack that off. I just yeah. won't use that term anymore, like whatever. But pretty soon you may have, you know, cut away more than the tumor. You may have taken away a lot that's of value. And we, yeah. when we do that, we're only, I think, going to um, deprive ourselves. I'm mixing metaphors here, forgive me, but like we want the roots to be broad and deep, right? You want the sap flowing into mm -hmm. the tree. I don't know how you best do that. I've, I've said the caveats, but I really take the caveats seriously. Um, it's not like I want to be a traditionalist. I'm like, well, if it's ever been in scripture and if it's ever been used in a church council, well, by gosh, we have to use it this many times. That's obviously not the point. But Dr. Daisy Machado um, talks about the desire to dissect everything, yeah, but never replace it. Yeah, that, that's well said. And this is, yep. that's the danger of politically correct speech. Really is, exactly. That's a thoughtful concern. Not to yep. um, offend anyone, yep. not to traumatize anyone. Yep. Um, but it's the same challenge we have with tradition. Absolutely. Which is how much of tradition, even in our own families, do we hold to? How much of the tradition do we keep yep. versus how much do we let go? And it's a ongoing thing that I think moves and breathes and has, as you say, a constant check-in that you have to do. And what I really like about what you just related from Daisy Machado is the importance of replacing it. That necessitates 
critical reflection. Mm. And sometimes there we can get a little lazy and think, okay, as long as I don't use the word father for God, very good reasons not to do, or gendered language, I've solved the problem. And then without maybe reflecting on, okay, here, here are unobjectionable metaphors for God, but is there anything about the parental language that would now be missing? And is there some way I can bring that over without bringing patriarchal, unnecessary patriarchal language mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that God, God's self is already interrelational and that has implications for the doctrine of creation and for the, what happens in prayer when God speaks to God through creatures. You're being bound up into a conversation already in place. But you don't have a grammar in place for that sort of really interesting, juicy theology uh-huh. if you've completely jettisoned the relational terms. So, yes, fine language, especially for liturgy, for services, and so on, that doesn't preserve uh, male focus or whatever, but then wrestle hard with, What's real careful here, what will I be losing? Because in some ways it's enough just to know. As long as you know, mm-hmm. then when you do your other reflection, you bring it back in. You don't. I'm not trying to argue for using father and son. It's just that I want to hold on to that idea. Uh, I just want to clarify for some of the listeners who may not ever have this discussion, sure. who in their churches... This is not a thing, as in many yeah. churches it's not. But yeah. there is a real dialogue um, about women being oppressed um, in the Bible, that there is very gendered language to say uh, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit leaves out women completely. So it means that God did not look at women, and God didn't see women, and if this is a God of love who created all creatures, then why would he use this language? So this is a very real discussion in which people then go in and decide which he mm-hmm. that they will use, which pronouns they will use for God, which uh, language they will keep. And so uh, what I hear you saying, and I am agreeing with, is yes, to be able to not traumatize someone in this manner, but to also have a serious discussion on there. How to replace this so that it is still holds its substance. There, exactly. And so you as a language professor, I guess I should have asked you even in the beginning because you said, uh, because you read the Bible in Greek. So speak to that and maybe why you read it in even a different language than just English. I actually think most of the translations are really good. I don't have any criticism of them. And I always want to make sure I say to students um, who are taking Hebrew or Greek from me, please don't wield this in a way that gives someone the impression that if they're using an English translation, they're somehow further from the Word of God than you are. You know, that that's very ugly. I see this a lot. Mm-hmm. The, the pastor says, well, actually, the Hebrew word means such and such. <laughs> right. And then there's just this gap, and maybe someone who is knows the Bible very well, doesn't have access to those languages, is made to feel that they're inferior. Frankly, the the translations are mostly just really great, although people should know that their Bibles are translated from the Hebrew and a bit of Aramaic and the Greek. Because the target language, to use the technical terms, might not have the same range of options as the original language. Hmm. 
So you could say, this is the word for congregation. It's a good translation. But what I can't do in English is tell you without a footnote or something, what else in the ancient world was that term used for? Um, how novel would it have sounded to use this word for a gathering, to use it for a religious gathering? So the word we translate church or gathering, whatever, it's a fine translation, but it sounds different if you know. Hmm. So again, nothing you can't fault the translator. But English just doesn't have a word that applies to civic public gatherings or to mobs, a single word that a religious group could also apply to themselves. And that's what the Christians, that's the type of word they took. There is so much more than what's on the page. Yeah. And I believe that is part of that message of Jesus of we don't have all of we don't have the book of Jesus. We have yeah. the gospels that are accounts because I believe it's in the doing that we see. Yeah. In, in the I living and the embodiment that I we think are. There's scriptures taught. that would agree with you on that very point. Even in the gospels themselves, they indicate that real glimpses of Jesus aren't simply a matter of knowing things about him. They come, the most famous example would be in the road to Emmaus, uh, through traveling with him, in that case in the breaking of bread, but somehow it's in the course of discipleship that what really counts as revelation takes place. So actually I think there's something profound and really important there that Kierkegaard says this stuff very well, but he's taking it right from Scripture, and others have said it well as also, that you could look at Jesus and know everything about him and not learn anything about God. And, 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 and he says that as a Christian. Mm -hmm. like That's not saying something bad about Jesus. Right. It's that there's some change of lens, like as if, as if you had an infrared lens that let me see something different than just normal visible light. Mm -hmm. And now, oh, I see something different before me now. And I'm being too condensed here, but that that's something about a lens of faith, but also that it's comes about in the course of the following, the doing, as you said. Um, yeah, I, I believe that very much. Because I'm an academic and I have lots of doubts and maybe like years are spent in various states of paralysis from doubt. <laughs> and it's been really helpful for me. Blaise Pascal, old French mathematician and theologian, also says this sort of thing really well. He says something like, don't come to me and say, I don't see no God and think you've proven something that contradicts my hypothesis. <laughs> he says, me as a believer... My very high, built into my hypothesis is that you won't see God until you're somehow following after. He recognizes that's a paradox, mm. but I've found that to be true. That it's been after weeks of spiritual dryness and blindness that something happens in community. For me, this has been the major locus of revelation. Has been like. Christians working together. I am maybe not as liturgical as some people, or those haven't been the things that have been the most, I don't know, revelatory or transformative. But where there are moments where I say, 
don't tell me we didn't just get a little bit of the kingdom breaking in here and now in this. Mm-hmm. Put yourself back in those scenarios because if you hadn't been here on this afternoon, on this morning, doing this, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have gotten this glimpse. And you'd be sitting feeling ice cold saying, I see no God, there's nothing. It's just the facts of life. But that really resonates with me. It does. It, the practice, the uh, Brene Brown says, uh, what I relate to the same context is, she says, I don't want to hear criticism from people who are not yeah. on the field. Yeah, I, I agree. I have reached that part, that point in my life. Uh, at almost 40 now, it's like, I, I go to my nephew's basketball game in Connecticut. Yeah. And hmm. as an observer, because yeah. I'm not really into basketball, I am just, again, amazed at all of these coaches yeah. in the stand yeah. who are screaming at their children yep. and the other people of what play to do and how yep. to do defense. And yep. I'm like... If everyone's a coach here, yeah. and so that's what it feels like. It feels like people, people are in the stands of life and telling you what you should be doing. And I don't discount a bird's eye view, right. but it's in the doing that you get a perspective that doesn't, that doesn't come. And I, I'll be the first to admit, I used to be, when people would say to me, you're not a parent, you don't understand, yeah. that I'd be like, I don't have to be a parent. Right. I was a child. I get it. Right. But what they're saying is, you don't have a parent's perspective. Yeah. You're not in the day-to-day. Yeah. And so what you're missing is, yeah. I was doing my best on Monday. And in doing my best, I had this call, yeah. and I had to go there, yeah. and the moment you saw me wasn't my best. It's good. It was my best for the moment. You're, so until you're in that, you don't understand that. You're touching on so many important, heavy topics. Like one I hear you alluding to this has been something I've had to really learn. Just like you, uh, it would be the importance of embodied knowledge, right? And so I think I was always suspicious of the claim, you wouldn't understand you're not a woman, (laughs) or you wouldn't understand you're not black man, or Mm -hmm. fill in the blank, right? Yeah. And I thought, yeah, but... I live in the same world and I have a pretty good imagination and I think I'm entitled to a certain judgment about this. And I do, like you said, you come to see the wisdom that, no, I don't every day have these embodied experiences and there are ways of knowing that that maybe the worst thing about the Enlightenment, to speak grandly here, uh, was the idea that the ideal of knowledge, the goal, Mm is to strip away our particularities and just be a disembodied knower. And we're still haunted by this ideal, right? Mm -hmm. That like, well, I don't want to know as an American or as a Christian or as a whatever else. I just want, like, truth should be universal, so the knowing of truth should be universal. Mm -hmm. There's something in that that's right, but it was not... (laughs) It obviously misses a lot that we all only know from particular places. It doesn't breathe. And that there's no, I mean, part of the self-delusion is that when we think we're stripping away, I'm no longer a French philosopher, I'm no longer a French aristocrat, I'm simply a universal knower, you're not really 
you're not even coming close to stripping away the particularities you think you are. Because they carry, they go with They you. go with you. There's no way to escape it. And that's part of our human finitude. Mm -hmm. I'm much more comfortable with that human finitude than I used to be. And it means shut up and listen for me um, and tarry before someone saying, you know, my fiance saying, you don't understand this perspective, this from a woman's perspective. And I think I'm, I'm doubtful, but I'm going to listen uh, because I'm not a woman. So you may be right and I may be wrong, probably are, et cetera, et cetera, through the different things. Um, yeah, I think you're right. So go back to my earlier bugbear about age. I'm at the point in, I'm 45. Reach into the choir. Okay. <laughs> Where are we going? Like, I used to be so dismissive of the value of age. And I remember I had a, a youth minister when I was in college. And I said, why do we need to go? We had some sort of parachurch thing and we had meetings, all these different meetings. And I was like, why do I need to go to some Sunday morning thing? <laughs> One of the things he said that really caught me totally off guard. I was 17 years old. He said, he said, there's no old people around here and you need old people. I thought, what do I need? Anyway, I didn't believe him at the time, but it stuck with me. And now I just hanker for old mm -hmm. people's perspective. Yes. Like, what substitute is there for being on this earth for 80 years? The perspective you have, um, I, I have, uh, I'll share this with you. My grandmother passed away in 2009, and it was the same thing. Mm -hmm. I have lived my life enjoying the company of people who've been able to, when I think about my grandmother born in 1922, mm. what you've seen since 1922, uh, when I think about Miss Stein and being 103, mm -hmm. okay, so you've lived a hundred years. Yeah. I would be so blessed to have that perspective yeah. at 39, like, yeah. no, but I, I can want, glean. It's, it's a, what a treat. Yes. It's, it's a little like seeing into the future, like, and our future will be different, but they, there's a wisdom there. And especially as, as an academic working with mostly young people, I feel like, oh, we need more older voices more often. I mean, at Union, think about we work very hard, and this is good. I mean, for the embodied reasons we're talking about, we work very hard to make sure we have a diversity of voices along gender, sexual orientation, mm -hmm. ethnicity, nationality we do well mm -hmm. but and i'm not just trying to add another box you know but we don't give that much thought to age and the advantage we, of having age diversity i don't think we do it in our churches as well or anymore. churches yeah um our churches are very youth oriented now yeah. and i would say middle age we yeah. want to keep sort of that younger demographic going yeah. because you know, they're the ones working the jobs that are making the six yeah. figures now. Yeah. And, and all of these other reasons. But um, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But yes, definitely I value the wisdom um, and just the experience. And I respect mm -hmm. the, fact that you, the fact that you have made it to 80 mm -hmm. in whatever shape. Mm -hmm. you, you get my respect just Absolutely. from the door. And Life's hard. Everyone's life is hard. Even the easier lives. There's yes. easier and harder lives. But they're all hard in their own way. So, yeah, absolutely. Right there, right you there. deserve you, my, you get my respect. respect. Absolutely. Um, I have some rapid-fire questions all right, uh, to ask. What or who is God? Pass. <laughs> uh, I don't have a tidy rapid-fire answer. 
So my answer would be kind of an old-fashioned Neoplatonist Christian answer. The unoriginate source, utterly transcendent, um, from whom all being flows, to whom all ultimately returns. That's not old-fashioned. That's, that's good for me. All right. Uh, finish a sentence. What the world needs now is wisdom. Mm. Why does this matter? Why does having a conversation about language, Bible language, language and how we identify ourselves, just why does this matter? Well, in the biggest sense, it matters to go back to what you opened with. People have a lot of misunderstanding about what Christianity is or has been or could be. I'm uncomfortable being an evangelist because I once was too vigorous an evangelist. But it really breaks my heart when I see increasing secularity seems to be largely based on no good reasons at all. So I guess I feel like there's perfectly good reasons to decide you don't want to be a believer of any sort or to decide you want to believe, be a believer of some other thing besides Christianity. Mm-hmm. I respect those. But find the good reasons. Don't reject it because you don't even have any idea what's there. And that goes to begin with people don't know what the Bible is or they have very naive views about how to interpret it. And I guess I feel like also with the languages, I taught undergraduates in Australia. Australia is much more secular than America. There was a real twitchiness about studying this book. What are we doing? Why are we doing this at a college, a university? Mm. And I don't. I think it was quite easy on day one to just demystify it all and say, I'm going to teach you about a, an old set of texts and the peoples who created them and used them. And you don't need to have any big reaction at all. Just learn about them the same way, as I said at the beginning, you might take a class in Chinese history and you'd learn about the texts from thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm just introducing you to a set of texts. And they were real suspicious about the Bibles that I'd ordered with the bookstore. And well, isn't it translation upon translation? We don't even know what happened. And I said, well, there was almost this suspicion that nothing could be known about the past at all. And even educated friends harbored this idea. And I said, no, of course our knowledge of the past is limited um, and imperfect, but we know all sorts of things. We know all sorts of things about the past and we can flesh this out and you can make an informed decision. For those, and I said to those of you who are religious already, this might feel weird to study your own sacred scripture just like it's Homer's Odyssey, or just like it, and it's going to feel a little weird. You'll get over it. I said to those of you who grew up with this idea that I, I don't go in for that nonsense, learn a little bit about the nonsense first, and you can still, there'll be plenty of time to reject it later. I'll be honest with you, I'll, tell, I'll show you the worst, goofiest passages in the Bible if you want. I'm not trying to convert you, right. but you need to know what's in here. And there doesn't need to be any drama about studying it. So I guess I'm sad that the religious literacy is at such a low point that 
people don't know what they're missing. Deeper Conversations is brought to you by Poor Culture. We do church different.